Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Man of Sorrows. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 22, 2015, the fifth Sunday in Lent. During the Feast of Passover, some Gentile pilgrims approached Philip with a request that the disciples must have fielded many times during Jesus' ministry. Had they traveled all the way to Jerusalem just to ask their question? Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip relayed their requests to Andrew, and together they told Jesus. But their query fizzles out in the story in John chapter 12, then takes a new turn. We never learn if the Gentile pilgrims got an audience with the one about whom they had heard so many rumors. Jesus ignored their, their question. He had darker things on his mind than the curiosity of the crowds. I wonder, was theirs an honest question? Were these pilgrims genuine seekers or mere gawkers? What did they hope to see or want to hear from Jesus? They never saw Jesus, but their question hangs in the air. I've asked it for 40 years, in my own ways and with my own motives. It sounds so simple, a straightforward request. But is it really? Ever? Maybe it's one of those questions that asks more than I could ever realize. Perhaps it's an example of the adage, be careful what you wish for. Do I really want the real Jesus? Which Jesus and why? The miracle worker who turned water to wine and raised Lazarus from the dead? The storyteller whose parables simultaneously revealed and obscured the political provocateur who debated Roman taxes but welcomed Roman tax collectors, the renegade rabbi who violated purity laws, broke the Sabbath, embraced the sexually suspicious, ate with ethnic outsiders, and who profaned Israel's most sacred space, the temple. The Jesus of John's Gospel for this week is a deeply disturbed Jesus. Now my soul is troubled, he says. But he never asked God to save him from his troubles. He says that his troubles are the very reason he came. We read in John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The person who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. 
This saying of Jesus was so central to his mission and message that all four Gospels include it, and twice in Luke. The epistle for this week paints a similar picture of Jesus. Hebrews describes him as a person who was subject to weakness, tempted in every way, just as we are. He prayed his prayers to God with loud cries and tears. This Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows who knew from experience the meaning of grief. This notion of a deeply disturbed Jesus who was tempted and tried like I am bothered some of his earliest followers. Upon hearing words like these, Peter was shocked. Lord, this shall never happen to you. The second century Gnostics and Docetics argued that Jesus only seemed human. Surely he wasn't polluted by the trials and tribulations of our material existence. One Sunday in church, I joked to a friend who's a historian that the baby Jesus never would have cried in the temple like the kid near us was wailing, to which she responded, So, you're a docetist. Similarly, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River made some Christians very nervous. In the non-canonical gospel of the Hebrews from about the year 100 A.D., Jesus seems to get baptized to please his mother, not to repent for his sins like everyone else. This impulse to airbrush the humanity of Jesus remains with us today. The 1988 movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, portrays a deeply troubled Jesus. He confesses his sins. He fears insanity. He wonders if he's merely a man, and he anguishes over the people that he didn't heal. In his last or final temptation of his execution, Jesus battles a hallucination sent by Satan. He wonders what his life might have been like if he had chosen the path of an ordinary person. He fantasizes about marrying Mary Magdalene, growing old, and having kids. Many Christians were outraged by the movie. Blockbuster Video, remember them? Even refused to carry it. What bothered people was the suggestion that Jesus was fully and truly human. That he was a person who experienced trials and temptations like we do. Torment, doubt, loneliness, confusion, despair, erotic dreams, and, in his final hours, feeling abandoned by God. But in trying to protect a perfect Jesus from a genuine humanity, we do the opposite of what he himself says and does. Instead of insulating himself from us, he fully participates with us. And so Hebrews insists that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Consequently, 
since Jesus was subject to all our own weaknesses, the epistle continues. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. The troubled Jesus shows us the human face of a compassionate God. Instead of fearing a far-off deity, says Hebrews, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This has been a hard week in my neighborhood. I worshiped beside a parishioner who recently lost a child to a heroin overdose. That was a disconcertingly sacred experience. A friend was diagnosed with stage three melanoma and yet another suicide at our high school, the third this year school year. Can that even be true? What's wrong with us? Sir, we would like to see Jesus. If I can't see Jesus, the miracle worker, and I still pray for that, I take solace in the deeply disturbed Jesus. And in the reminder of Psalm 51 for this week, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. For books this week, I review a bestseller by Atul Gawande. It's called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. New York Metropolitan Books, 2014, 282 pages. Atul Gawande is a general surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, a professor at Harvard Medical School, and the author of three previous best-selling books. In 2003, Complications, A Surgeon's Note on an Imperfect Science. In 2008, Better, A Surgeon's Notes on Performance. And then in 2009, A Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Right. In her own review, Marcia Angel, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, calls his newest book, Being Mortal, his best book yet. Gawande says that instead of acknowledging the natural order of things, we've been seduced by the prevailing fantasy that we are ageless. Instead of acknowledging the limits of medical treatments, we've turned mortality into an almost purely medical experience, which in turn has led to denial, dishonesty, arrogance, and for the elderly and the dying, horrible social isolation. Whereas the vast majority of people used to die at home among a multi-generational family, by the 1980s only 17% of us did. This reduction of mortality to medicine, says Gawande, has done tremendous harm instead of healing. 
As in his previous books, most of Gawande's narrative is composed of clinical anecdotes from his surgical practice. This makes for simple, powerful, and at times very disturbing storytelling. He also writes at length about his own family's struggle with aging and dying, his wife's grandmother, his grandfather in India who lived to be 110, and, most poignantly, his own father. Both of his parents were physicians, so between the three of them they had 120 years of medical experience. But when Gawande's father was diagnosed with a tumor in his spinal cord, he says they stepped through the looking glass. They had to acknowledge that they were up against the unfixable. What were we to do? It seemed a mystery. There are positive alternatives to spending all of your money in your last days drugged out of your mind, hooked up to multiple machines, and isolated in the ICU. Gawande explains the history of nursing homes, hospice care, assisted living, and even other creative alternatives. He writes, there are people in the world who change imaginations. Acknowledging your mortality is a tremendous gift. It reorders your desires. It narrows your focus and gives you a new perspective that's rooted in reality instead of futile medical fantasies. Medical interventions are only justified, says Gawande, if they serve the larger aims of a person's life. When we forget that, the suffering we inflict can be barbaric. But when we remember it, the good we do can be breathtaking. The author, Atul Gawande, the title of the book, Being Mortal. For movies this week, I review a documentary called The Overnighters from 2014. This documentary film shows what happened in Williston, North Dakota, when hydraulic fracking in the oil industry created a boom-bust economy. Rents quadrupled when people from all over the country inundated the small town looking for work. Homelessness and unemployment became huge problems. Pastor Jerry Reinke of Concordia Lutheran Church opened the doors of his church to these homeless, unemployed people. They slept in Sunday school rooms, the church library, the sanctuary, the hallways, the church parking lot, and even in Reinke's own home. In two years, they served over a thousand people. Disgruntled congregants left the church. The city council got involved. The local people resented the out-of-towners. His family suffered. In the end, a disparity between Reinke's public persona and his private identity made things even worse. This is a complicated story about complex social problems and the good people who try to solve them. 
a documentary film from 2014, The Overnighters. And for the first fifth Sunday in Lent, we've posted a poem by Mary Ann Bernard. It's called Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head, her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow, and thought somehow my pain would pass, with winter's pain and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone, it's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep in fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, that things don't follow fast or fair that life goes on and times do change and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow, the smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. But now I know the sun does shine, that children smile and from the dark, cold grime, a flower comes. It groans and sings, and through its pain, its peace begins. Mary Ann Bernard. You can find that poem on our website. It's called Resurrection. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 22nd. 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.